Hello, everyone. Alice Forsyth from Virginia Mason Institute in Seattle, and we are a not-for-profit consultancy working with healthcare organizations worldwide to develop a, a culture of continuous improvement. Hi, everyone. My name is Kian Wade. I'm a junior doctor and was a National Medical Director's Clinical Fellow with NHS England's National Patient Safety Team a couple of years ago. Um, and I now work uh, in the US uh, with a management consulting firm uh, with various healthcare organizations um, across the US and the world. Hello, my name's Vando Watson. I'm a paediatrician working in Northwest London in the National Health Service. Um, and I lead a collaborative called Connecting Care for Children, which takes the resources that we have in our system and brings them together to work collaboratively to improve child health outcomes. Thanks ever so much, everyone, for joining me. I'm really excited to have a health equity part of the podcast this year for Quality 2023. I thought we could start with some kind of definitions. What is health inequity? Is it the same as health inequality? What's the difference? Uh, yeah, so just trying to think, the classic image that you have is of uh, provide two people trying to look over into a sports ground and providing them with the same sized block to look on, uh, but ultimately because one was taller than the other in the first place, uh, they don't actually achieve equity. So I think of equity as very much the outcome that we are seeking, um, particularly from a, a health perspective. Um, and so you know, one example that I think has always struck me in my particular line of work and interest is thinking about um, differences in rates of complications from various procedures. So the same procedure is performed um, on, on two different sets of patients, perhaps from, perhaps from different ethnic backgrounds. The surgeons perform, perform it in exactly the same way. Um, the various perioperative rehabilitation um, uh, strategies are, are, are taken in the same way, but ultimately the actual outcome um, for patients is different. So, for example, we know that from US data that black patients um, suffer um, perioperative pulmonary emboli, emboli in certain um, series that we've looked at um, sort of at a 24% higher rate. Um, now, what we could look into there is the extent to which despite equality having been applied to their healthcare journeys why is it that we're not seeing the equity in the outcome there and that's where really we need to start thinking about more bespoke uh, approaches to the treatment of certain patients who we know are at higher risk of these issues occurring so perhaps um, bespoke elements to their perioperative um, rehabilitation and some of the care that we're providing around there so it's very much focusing upon um, the outcomes I think that the NHS is an interesting case study in itself, isn't it? It's a it's a service that's free at the point of access, therefore available to all, and there's the equality there. Um, but actually what we need to move to is a more needs-based approach. And if you think about the population that we serve and their needs and address those more directly then we become more equitable and get those better outcomes. Um, and actually, the, the GP practice in the NHS is a really important node, if you like, in the system, 
the GPs, the trusted family doctors know their population. They know the children, in my case, if it's a paediatric population, but they know the parents. They probably know the grandparents. They know the housing estate where that family's growing up. They know um, the wider challenges that that family and that child is living with alongside the health issues. So then you start to address the health needs much more directly in the context of that individual patient's wider circumstances and, and therefore reduce inequity. Okay, so we know what health inequity is. We've got some examples there. I'm interested in moving on, Kian, and talking about what drives health inequity. And I guess we've we've touched already on you know some of the social determinants that clearly drive inequity, poverty, unemployment, housing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm interested in your thoughts on how the system itself can drive inequity. Yeah, so as you mentioned, a, a huge driver and a huge focus uh, over a number of decades now in the health inequity space has been on how those social determinants drive these differences in outcomes. And, and that is hugely important. And it is a complex issue that is the purview of, of you know, multiple different stakeholders, including government to set, set overall policy that addresses those. Uh, my particular area of interest is, is looking at slightly further towards the health system itself and its workforce and, and a, a fairly underexplored area uh, that seems to be driving some of these health inequities is around differences in the quality of care that is provided. And, and in particular, I've been looking at patient safety as one of those quality measures. Um, so we, patient safety is essentially attempting to avoid avoidable harm whilst patients are going through the system, undergoing procedures, receiving medications, et cetera. And what we found is that actually um, patients dependent upon their, their ethnic background or their socioeconomic background, um, are actually at greater higher risk of harm from some of these procedures compared to other patients. Now, the reason that that is significant um, is because patient safety is regarded as a central purview and, and one of the first duties of a health system and of the health system's workforce. So first, do no harm is um, uh, a classic mantra. Um, and so when we, and, and so this is relatively alarming and I think is something that um, is is of interest to healthcare leaders because it seems to be something that's almost in our backyard and therefore we should be very much sort of the primary stakeholder in addressing that. Um, some of the drivers that we see um, are, are range from things such as um, inadequate communication tools that we sometimes use. For example, a very simple example is we know that patients who don't have English as their first language are at higher risk of medication errors. Um, when they are prescribed medications because um, the instructions are often given in English. Um, perhaps safety netting instructions um, have also not been provided in a, in a linguistically and, and culturally appropriate manner. And then we move towards slightly more complex and tricky issues. So, for example, there is good data to suggest that uh, black patients receive less opiate analgesia compared to white patients when presenting essentially identically with pain symptoms such as abdominal pain. And that starts to touch upon um, these unconscious biases that uh, may exist within our workforce that are perpetuated by some of the um, perhaps white centric or, or inadequately holistic 
um, curricula that we are using to train some of our workforce um, and a general lack of awareness of some of these issues and how they actually may be driving differences in patient safety and therefore may be a driver of health inequities that we can actually um, address um, ourselves to an extent. I would add that it's important to collect the right demographic data in order to truly individualize the care uh, and meet the needs of the patients. Because if we don't know enough about their background, we may not be able to um, take the time to ask the right questions to learn about some of those social determinants or other factors that may be involved in their care. Um, so that's becoming more and more, um, it's becoming more and more prevalent to collect a broader set of data, for example, LGBTQIA plus data at registration um, when a patient is admitted or when a patient is entering for an ambulatory visit to understand and whether the patient is an adolescent or uh, an adult to collect some of those data. Um, that's becoming a requirement here where we are, as well as race, ethnicity and language data. A lot of healthcare is based on trust and relationships. And I think sometimes we undervalue the importance of really understanding where uh, the patients we serve are coming from. And some of the inequalities relate to very measurable things like age and demographic, but some of them are more subtle um, and patients won't always tell you what they're really worried about. They won't tell you what they're really thinking. And we have to find ways of building enough trust to be able to draw that out. And one of the ways is to use well-established techniques such as co-production. Uh, the other is um, to go back to my earlier point about um, the trusted family doctor. Actually, there are often people in the system who know those patients, know the families, um, and have really important insights. And it's about making sure we ask those questions of the right people. We need to build in some sort of factor for age and early intervention. And there is a really growing body of knowledge that says that if we can actually um, improve health outcomes early, we create a, a very uh, long return on investment, if you like, um, and will improve health outcomes and, and improve life chances for some of the most disadvantaged. So uh, a plug there for thinking about inequality in the context of early childhood intervention. When you're speaking though, it makes me think about culturally competent care and the need for a diverse workforce that actually is representative of the population. You know, in my field, in mental health, we have a very white middle-class clinical psychology profession who are trying to become culturally competent to deliver services to a very diverse population. And that feels like a real disconnect to me. Do any of you want to kind of speak a little bit about what's happening to improve the individual understanding and competence that 
health professionals have to be able to deliver this kind of equitable care? Some of the solutions that we were looking at um, to some of the issues that we'd identified, such as, as you say, requiring um, that degree of cultural competence to be able to enter into a, a trusting um, and empowering relationship um, of patients, I think um, Amanda was, was referring to there. Um, some of the things we were looking at were, was this idea of co-production, which again was raised there. So it is, yes, we can train and do you know, unconscious bias training of, of all of our workforce, but at the end of the day, the most powerful tool here is ensuring that you're getting the right voices in the room. And I think that's probably where we've not been good enough over many years and actually um, ensuring that there is representation from, from patient advocates, from patients' as communities, from patient family members in the room where critical decisions are being made, where critical data points are being gathered on this patient about you know, what the trajectory of their healthcare journey is going to be. Um, I think that is a very important um, you know, weapon in, in our arsenal, if you like, of actually making a, an impact here and moving the needle slightly. I, I would agree. And further, I would say that one of the things that we're doing in co-production now is really, and this is at the request of the um, experts by experience that we're working with, is for them to go off and do design work and thinking together as a cohort and then come back to us and say, these are the priorities that we see. And this is how we'd like to see this work move forward. And that has been incredibly powerful in really ensuring we're working on the right things to make an impact. Yeah, absolutely. Answering the right questions in the first place rather than starting the project and then co-producing it once you've decided what you're going to do. It's a bit late then, isn't it? I'm interested in how we prioritise tackling inequity. Mando, maybe you could start with this, because I know your kind of community collaboration work is a really nice answer to this question. Given the current climate, how can we prioritise health inequity? Well, I think the first thing to say is that if you if you want the right answer to that question, you have to ask the people that you're serving. So it is not for the professionals to determine the priorities, it is for the public and the patients that we serve. And actually, if we ask them in the right way and uh, involve them early, then uh, we will get the right steer. The other thing that we often forget is quite how important the public and patients themselves are as a resource for self-management. And if we can work with them we amplify the impact of anything that we do uh, to an extraordinary degree. We spent a bit of time a couple of years ago working with stakeholders across the whole system, by which I mean healthcare, uh, social care, voluntary sector, primary care, and so on, and uh, to understand what priorities there were in the community for their children's health. And one of the things that came through very strongly was the difficulty that patients have in navigating the system. And this particularly came from the young people that we were hearing from. And so we did a bit of work with them to understand what they meant. Um, and actually it's surfaced some very simple questions about how 
how much ignorance there is in a 15, 16, 17-year-old about what they're allowed to do and not allowed to do. Can they get prescriptions? Can they see their doctor on their own? Um, what choices do they have? And, and that led to some uh, uh, really fun work with young people in designing uh, information for other young people on their FAQs. Um, we called it Own It and helping young people take ownership of their healthcare. And that uh, surfaced a couple of other really interesting interfaces. One was how difficult it is for parents to let go. So it's not just about young people stepping forward and grabbing their own healthcare, but we had to also do something to help parents let go. Uh, safely. And then it also surfaced that actually um, clinicians find it difficult to adjust. And having spent the last maybe 12 years talking to the parents about the child health problem, they had to learn how to talk to the young person about the young person's health problem. So there's a there's a piece of work to to help professionals adapt to. As people who are interested and part of this health equity movement, if we can call it that. How do you persuade people to prioritise this over, you know, having enough nurses or paying people enough? <laughs> you know, those are sort of very fundamental things about our health systems. How do you persuade people that this is a priority too? I think we still do have, but certainly had a very interesting policy window over the last couple of years in which um, off the back of COVID and all of the inattentions on health inequities there and, and the huge political impetus behind that, as well as the broader social justice movement, um, I think that there has been you know, almost an unprecedented impetus to do something about it. I do fear that, particularly over the last year, as you say, there are other competing interests. The NHS in particular has been under extraordinary strain over the last six to 12, well, longer, but you know, particularly over the last year. Um, as we've tried to recover from COVID. So yeah, how do we maintain this? And, and I think there is, there's a few answers. I think one interesting way in which we do this, and I think is convincing for health system leaders and politicians, is we demonstrate the clear return on investment. And I think um, somebody raised it earlier that if you can demonstrate, which requires good measurement, good data, et cetera, but if you can demonstrate that um, investing in preventative care early, targeting more vulnerable populations, actually has a clear cost saving down the line for the NHS, then that is um, convincing for healthcare leaders. I think if you flip that to look at um, systems that not not so socialized systems, for example, in the US, um, how can you convince physicians that there is, you know, a, an ROI, if you like, for them to be able to invest? And that's through um, ensuring that um, preventative care is well reimbursed. Um, through Medicare, Medicaid, et cetera, maybe specific reimbursement for, for um, you know, particularly thinking about children as well. Um, how can we leverage industry and technological? How can we make sure that all this exciting new tech that's coming through in the healthcare industry is actually directed towards our most vulnerable patients? Well, that might require some, some further, um, you know, specific innovation funds that, that aren't just saying, well, you know, let's develop stuff that 
people can buy, but actually perhaps government funding to try and incentivize companies to specifically target um, our most vulnerable patients. So that's 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 a kind of financial answer to that, which I think speaks to um, the pragmatic lens. I think that sometimes um, uh, the politicians and, and the purse string holders really, really think through sometimes. Well, I would just say that we... It seems very simple, but we really try to keep the patients at the center of everything we do. And so if it's in the best interest of our patients to, uh, and it is, to reduce healthcare inequalities, in inequities, um, then it's very much a priority. And so through experience, especially over the last several years, uh, we have developed tools that can help our leaders and frontline staff get involved in conversations around equity where in the past they might've been more reluctant to do so, but through some tools and some training, uh, they're gaining more fluency, more comfort and, and more cultural humility in having those conversations. And that has been a huge benefit. Why should people come to your session at the Quality 2023 event in Copenhagen? We have a 75-minute interactive workshop that we'll be doing on uh, helping leaders use a set of tools to drive conversations with their teams, uh, again, gain that comfort and confidence in having conversations about equity uh, and include equity in their decision-making process so that they can improve patient safety, quality, and experience, as well as team member experience and well-being. So we'll we'll be sharing a, a number of different tools that we've developed, and we'll be uh, encouraging people to practice and then develop their own action plan for how they can use similar tools in their own health systems. So we have a 75-minute uh, symposium that we're going to um, ensure is very interactive with our audience and I think what we're going to do is really explore something that is relatively underexplored which is the way in which our actual medical practice and the way that health systems are designed are also contributing to health inequities on top of the social determinants of health and so by the end of the symposium um, in which we're going to be presenting our findings and co-designing some solutions with audience members that they can hopefully take away and, and uh, into their practice and into their leadership um, we hope we'll have offered a, a reimagination of of how the healthcare system and its workforce um, can can change its approaches to to reducing health inequities. So we are going to spend an hour thinking differently, and I think taking this great opportunity that um, the inequality inequity lens gives us to say how do we use our resources to go further to achieve more to be preventative, to be proactive rather than reactive. Um, and I think it's really important that we think about this is this is going to be thinking about children particularly, but actually the, the learning that we've developed through managing children differently, it applies to all ages. Um, and I think it's going to be a, a lovely opportunity to really um, understand what other people are grappling with and use some of our experience to help everybody become um, more effective in the transformational work that they're doing. I think it's really important that we harness patient voice uh, and if we can make that patient voice a young person it's even more powerful. I, I, I always use Greta Thunberg as my example you know what lots and lots of really sort of 
illustrious people couldn't achieve, a 16-year-old with, a, with a, an articulate voice was able to, to move mountains. So I think it'll be fun and I think we'll all learn from each other. Mm-hmm.